Hi, and welcome back to The Calm Cafe, your cozy home for sleep stories and guided relaxation. I'm Adam, and tonight we start our fourth and final book that we'll be reading in the near future. Is that too many books? I mean, I wanted a bit of, I don't know, variety, but can you be reading too many books at once? I'm not sure, but if you ask my wife, with my memory, we should count ourselves lucky I've remembered that we're reading any books at all. Who am I again? (laughs) Hi, I'm Adam. (laughs) And before I forget, see what I did there, if you're happy with how you're listening currently to this podcast, that's great. However, if you're not or would like an alternative, we now have our link list set up on our Instagram. Just simply go to Calm Cafe Podcast on Instagram and click the link in our bio. That will give that will take you to an easy to navigate list to take you to either Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Acast's main site. Oh, and while you're there on Insta, why not drop us a follow? Go on, you know you want to. Well, maybe you don't, but do it anyway, please, for me. And maybe drop a rating if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That really is too much now. Stop it, Adam. Anyway, back to tonight. And we're starting A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. If you listen to our last episode in which we started The Count of Monte Cristo, you'll know that I'm using this podcast in part to start my reading of classic titles. Those books that always come up on a books to read before you die kind of list. A little morbid, but, well, I get the premise. A Journey to the Centre of the Earth really stood out to me, as I I love adventure books. Sci-fi and dystopian being some of my favourite genres, but this Jules Verne adventure looks, well, right up my street. What's more, I love the fact that it starts in Iceland. Reykjavik being the location for my wife Emma's and my first date almost 20 years ago. (laughs) We weren't then, or nor are we now, loaded. Uh, We didn't just hop on a plane from the UK for a day out in the hot lagoons or anything like that. We were working on board cruise ships at the time, and Iceland's Reykjavik was the first port we stopped in after we first met, and we're both free. Neither of us had any excursion we needed to go on, and neither of us were on IPM, or in-port manning. That's a rotor-based system which, whenever in port, a certain percentage of ship's crew are required to stay on board in the unlikely event of fire or any other life-threatening emergency. So yeah, Iceland. That was quite a tangent, wasn't it? One of these future podcasts, I should just sit here with an empty page in front of me and just see what my subconscious just brings forward. On second thoughts, best not. Nobody needs that. Speaking of conscious, I want you to start to focus on you and your body and to start to allow yourself the right to relax right down. Nice segue, eh? (laughs) So whether you've had a busy day or a quiet one, now, right now, is the time to leave all of that behind. There's nothing for you to do right now. There's nothing for you to focus on but you and nowhere for you to go. So take a nice deep breath in through your nose, filling your chest up and let it all out through the mouth. 
Repeat again, in through your nose, not with any rush, just allowing your lungs to slowly inflate to their full capacity, and then gently out again through the mouth. And once more, really taking your time to take that full breath all the way in, all the way up to the top of your head. Hold it for three, two, one, and out through the mouth. And now allow your breathing to return to normal, slowly and steadily, in and out through the nose. Feel yourself becoming light, as if you're just brushing the surface of your bed. Light as a feather, as if at any moment a slight breeze could carry you away. It won't, don't worry. Relaxing your shoulders, your face, your head, your neck. They're all feeling light and airy. Allow that feeling to continue down your body, through your ribs, down into your hips, to your thighs, just lifting to your knees, to your lower legs, and finally down to your ankles, your feet, and to the tips of your toes. Looking back to all that has occurred to me since that eventful day, I am scarcely able to believe in the reality of my adventures. They were truly so wonderful that even now I am bewildered when I think of them. My uncle was a German, having married my mother's sister, an Englishwoman. Being very much attached to his fatherless nephew, he invited me to his study under him in his home, in his fatherland. The home was in a large town, and my uncle, a professor of philosophy, chemistry, geology, mineralogy, and many other ologies. One day, after passing some hours in the laboratory, my uncle being absent at the time, I suddenly felt the necessity of renovating the tissues, i.e. I was hungry. I was about to rouse up our old French cook when my uncle, Professor von Hardwick, suddenly opened the street door and came rushing upstairs. Now, Professor Hardwick, my worthy uncle, is by no means a bad sort of man. He is, however, choleric and original. To bear with him means to obey, and scarcely had his feet resounded within our joint domicile than he shouted for me to attend upon him. Harry! 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 I hastened to obey. But before I could reach his room, jumping three steps at a time, he was stamping his right foot upon the landing. Harry! He cried in a frantic tone. Are you coming up? Now, to tell the truth, at that moment I was far more interested in the question as to what was to constitute our dinner than in any problem of science. 
To me, soup was more interesting than soda, an omelette more tempting than arithmetic, and an artichoke of ten times more value than any amount of asbestos. But my uncle was not a man to be kept waiting, so adjourning, therefore, all minor questions, I presented myself before him. He was a very learned man. Now most persons in this category supply themselves with information, as peddlers do with goods, for the benefit of others, and lay up stores in order to diffuse them abroad for the benefit of society in general. Not so my excellent uncle, Professor Hardwig. He studied, he consumed the midnight oil, he pored over heavy tomes and digested huge quartos and folios in order to keep the knowledge acquired to himself. There was a reason, and it may be regarded as a good one, while my uncle objected to display his learning more than was absolutely necessary. He stammered, and when intent upon explaining the phenomena of the heavens, was apt to find himself at fault, and allude in such a vague way to sun, moon and stars that few were able to comprehend his meaning. To tell the truth, when the right word would not come, it was generally replaced by a very powerful adjective. In connection with the sciences, there were many almost unpronounceable names, names very much resembling those of Welsh villagers, and my uncle, being very fond of using them, his habit of stammering was not thereby improved. In fact, there were periods in his discourse when he would finally give up and swallow his discomfiture in a glass of water. As I said, my uncle, Professor Hardwick, was a very learned man, and now I add a most kind relative. I was bound to him by the double ties of affection and interest. I took deep interest in all his doings and hoped some day to be almost as learned myself. It was a rare thing for me to be absent from his lectures. Like him, I preferred mineralogy to all the other sciences. My anxiety was to gain real knowledge of the earth. Geology and mineralogy were to us the sole objects of life, and in connection with these studies, many a fair specimen of stone, chalk, or metal did we break with our hammers. Steel rods, lodestones, glass pipes, and bottles of various acids were oftener before us than our meals. My uncle Hardwick was once known to classify 600 different geological specimens by their weight, hardness, fusibility, sound, taste, and smell. He corresponded with all the great learned and scientific men of the age. I was, therefore, in constant communication with, at all the events of the letters of, Sir Humphrey Davy, Captain Franklin, and other great men. But before I state the subject on which my uncle wished to confer with me, I must say a word about his personal appearance. Alas, my readers will see a very different portrait of him at a future time, after he has gone through the fearful adventures yet to be related. My uncle was 50 years old, tall, thin and wiry. Large spectacles hid, to a certain extent, his vast, round and goggle eyes, while his nose was irreverently compared to a thin file. 
So much indeed did it resemble that useful article that a compass was said in his presence to have made considerable N nasal deviation. The truth being told, however, the only article really attracted to my uncle's nose was tobacco. Another peculiarity of his was that he always stepped a yard at a time, clenched his fists as if he were going to hit you, and was, when in one of his peculiar humours, very far from a pleasant companion. It is further necessary to observe that he lived in a very nice house in that very nice street, the Konigstrasse at Hamburg. Though lying in the centre of a town, it was perfectly rural in its aspect. Half wood, half bricks, with old-fashioned gables, one of the few old houses spared by the Great Fire of 1842. When I say nice house, I mean a handsome house, old, tottering, and not exactly comfortable to English notions, a house a little off the perpendicular and inclined to fall into the neighbouring canal, exactly the house for a wandering artist to depict, all the more that you could scarcely see it for ivy and a magnificent old tree which grew over the door. My uncle was rich. His house was his own property, while he had a considerable private income. To my notion, the best part of his possessions was his goddaughter, Gretchen. And the old cook, the young lady, the professor and I were the sole inhabitants. I loved mineralogy. I loved geology. To me, there was nothing like pebbles. And if my uncle had been in a little less of a fury, we should have been the happiest of families. To prove the excellent Hardwig's impatience, I solemnly declare that when the flowers in the drawing room pots began to grow, he rose every morning at four o'clock to make them grow quicker by pulling the leaves. Having described my uncle, I will now give an account of our interview. He reached me in his study a perfect museum containing every natural curiosity that can well be imagined, minerals, however, predominating. Every one was familiar to me, having been catalogued by my own hand. My uncle, apparently oblivious of the fact that he had summoned me to his presence, was absorbed in a book. He was particularly fond of early editions, tall copies, and unique works. Wonderful, he cried, tapping his forehead. Wonderful! Wonderful! It was one of those yellow-leaved volumes, now rarely found on stalls, and to me, it appeared to possess but little value. My uncle, however, was in raptures. He admired its binding, the clearness of its characters, the ease with which it opened in his hand, and repeated aloud half a dozen times that was very, very old. To my fancy, he was making a great fuss about nothing, but it was not my province to say so. On the contrary, I professed considerable interest in the subject and asked him what it was about. It is the Heims Kringler of Snor Talison, he said, the celebrated Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is a true account of the Norwegian princes who reigned in Iceland. My next question related to the language in which it was written 
I hoped at all events it was translated into German. My uncle was indignant at the very thought and declared he wouldn't give a penny for a translation. His delight was to have found the original work in the Icelandic tongue, which he declared to be one of the most magnificent and yet simple idioms in the world, while at the same time its grammatical combinations were the most varied known to students. About as easy as German, was my insidious remark. My uncle shrugged his shoulders. The letters, at all events, I said, are rather difficult to comprehend. It is runic manuscript, the language of the original population of Iceland, invented by Odin himself, cried my uncle, angry at my ignorance. I was about to venture upon some misplaced joke on the subject when a small scrap of parchment fell out of the leaves. Like a hungry man snatching at a morsel of bread, the professor seized it. It was about five inches by three and was scrawled over the most extraordinary fashion. The lines shown here are an exact facsimile of what was written on the venerable piece of parchment and have wonderful importance, as they induced my uncle to undertake the most wonderful series of adventures which ever fell to the lot of a human being. My uncle looked keenly at the document for some moments and then declared that it was runic. The letters were similar to those in the book, but then what did they mean? This was exactly what I wanted to know. Now, as I had a strong conviction that the runic alphabet and dialect were simply an invention to mystify poor human nature, I was delighted to find that my uncle knew as much about the matter as I did, which was nothing. At all events, the tremulous motion of his fingers made me think so. And yet, he muttered to himself, it is old Icelandic. I am sure of it. And my uncle ought to have known, for he was a perfect polyglot dictionary in himself. He did not pretend, like a certain learned pundit, to speak the 2,000 languages and 4,000 idioms made use of in different parts of the globe, but he did know all the important ones. It is a matter of great doubt to me now to what violent measures my uncle's impetuosity might have led him had not the clock struck two and our old French cook called out to let us know that dinner was on the table. Bother the dinner, cried my uncle. But as I was hungry, I sallied forth to the dining room, where I took up my usual quarters. Out of politeness, I waited three minutes, but no sign of my uncle, the professor. I was surprised. He was not usually so blind to the pleasure of a good dinner. It was the acme of German luxury, parsley soup, a ham omelette with sorrel trimmings, an oyster of veal stewed with prunes, delicious fruit and sparkling moselle. For the sake of pouring over this musty old piece of parchment, my uncle forbore to share our meal. To satisfy my conscience, I ate for both. The old cook and housekeeper was nearly out of her mind. After taking so much trouble, to find her master not appear at dinner was, to her, a sad disappointment. 
which, as she occasionally watched the havoc I was making on the viands, became also alarm. If my uncle were to come to the table at all? Suddenly, just as I had consumed the last apple and drunk the last glass of wine, a terrible voice was heard at no great distance. It was my uncle roaring for me to come to him. I made very nearly one leap of it, so loud, so fierce was his tone. I declare, cried my uncle, striking the table fiercely with his fist, I declare to you it is runic and contains some wonderful secret which I must get at at any price. I was about to reply when he stopped me. Sit down, he said quite fiercely, and write to my dictation. I obeyed. I will substitute, he said, a letter of our alphabet for that of the runic. We will then see what that will produce. Now begin and make no mistakes. The dictation commenced with the following incomprehensible result. Mernals, S rule, Sigjid, Sixfumthum, Ethif, Niduk, Kutsam, Achus, Sadorn, Eptnal, Noact, Rilsa. It went on. Scarcely give me time to finish, my uncle snatched the document from my hands and examined it with the most rapt and deep attention. I should like to know what that means, he said after a long period. I certainly could not tell him, nor did he expect me to, his conversation being uniformly answered by himself. I declare it puts me in mind of a cryptograph, he cried, unless indeed the letters have been written without any real meaning, and yet why take so much trouble? Who knows, but I may be on the verge of some great discovery. My candid opinion was that it was all rubbish. But this opinion I kept carefully to myself, as my uncle's caller was not pleasant to bear. All this time he was comparing the book with the parchment. The manuscript volume and the smaller document are written in different hands, he said. The cryptograph is of much later date than the book. There is an undoubted proof of the correctness of my surmise. An irrefragable proof, I took it to be. The first letter is a double M, which was only added to the Icelandic language in the 12th century. This makes the parchment 200 years posterior to the volume. The circumstances appeared very probable and very logical, but it was all surmised to me. To me, it appears probable that this sentence was written by some owner of the book, now who was the owner is the next important question. Perhaps by great luck it may be written somewhere in the volume. With these words, Professor Hardwick took off his spectacles and taking a powerful magnifying glass, examined the book carefully. On the fly leaf was what appeared to be a blot of ink, but on examination proved to be a line of writing almost effaced by time. This was what he sought, and after some considerable time, he made out those letters. Arne Saknusem, 
he cries in a joyous and triumphant tone. That is not only the Icelandic name, but of a learned professor of the 16th century, a celebrated alchemist. I bowed as a sign of respect. These alchemists, he continued, Avicenna, Bacon, Lully, Parclus, were the true, the only learned men of the day. They made surprising discoveries. May not this Saknusem, nephew mine, have hidden on this bit of parchment some astounding invention? I believe the cryptograph to have a profound meaning, which I must make out. My uncle walked about the room in a state of excitement almost impossible to describe. It may be so, sir, I timidly observed. But why conceal it from posterity, if it be a useful and worthy discovery? Why? How shall I know? Did not Galileo make a secret of his discoveries in connection with Saturn? But we shall see. Until I discover the meaning of this sentence, I will neither eat nor sleep. My dear uncle, I began, nor you neither, he added. It was lucky I had taken double allowance that day. In the first place, he continued, there must be a clue to the meaning. If we could find that, the rest would be easy enough. I began seriously to reflect. The prospect of going without food and sleep was not a promising one, so I determined to do my best to solve the mystery. My uncle, meanwhile, went on with his soliloquy. The way to discover it is easy enough. In this document there are 132 letters, giving 79 consonants to 53 vowels. This is about the proportion found in most southern languages, the idioms of the north being much more rich in consonants. We may confidently predict, therefore, that we have to deal with a southern dialect. Nothing could be more logical. Now, said Professor Hardwick, to trace the particular language. As Shakespeare says, that is the question, was my rather satirical reply. This man, Seknusem, he continued, was a very learned man. Now, as he did not write in the language of his birthplace, he probably, like most learned men of the 16th century, wrote in Latin. If, however, I prove wrong in this guess, we must try Spanish, French, Italian, Greek, and even Hebrew. My own opinion, though, is decidedly in favour of Latin. This proposition startled me. Latin was my favourite study, and it seemed sacrilege to believe this gibberish to belong to the country of Virgil. Barbarous Latin, in all probability, continued my uncle, but still Latin. Very probably, I replied, not to contradict him. Let us see into the matter, continued my uncle. Here, you see, we have a series of 132 letters apparently thrown pell-mell upon paper without method or organization. There are words which are composed wholly of consonants, such as mbrnwls, others which are nearly all vowels, the fifth, for instance, which is untieth, and one of the last osebo, this appears an extraordinary combination. Probably we shall find that the phrase is arranged according to some mathematical plan. No doubt a certain sentence has been written out and then jumbled up. Some plan to which some figure is the clue. Now, Harry, to show your English wit, what is that figure? 
I could give him no hint. My thoughts were indeed far away. While he was speaking, I had caught sight of the portrait of my cousin Gretchen and wondered when she would return. We were affianced and loved one another very sincerely, but my uncle, who never thought even of such subluminary matters, knew nothing of this. Without noticing my abstraction, the professor began reading the puzzling cryptograph all sorts of ways, according to some theory of his own. Presently, rousing my wandering attention, he dictated one precious attempt to me. I mildly handed it over to him. It read as follows. It was illegible. <laughs> I could scarcely keep from laughing, while my uncle, on the contrary, got in a towering passion, struck the table with his fist, darted out the room, out of the house, and then, taken to his heels, was presently lost to sight.